Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We've been speaking with mayors of cities where this program airs about how the pandemic, how Corona, the coronavirus and COVID-19 are affecting their communities. We've spoken with the mayors of Vancouver, Toronto, uh, Regina, Winnipeg, and uh, Hamilton. And joining us now from uh, the city of Calgary, uh, Mayor Nahid Nenshi. And uh, Mayor Nenshi, thank you very much for the time. First time, uh, I, first opportunity I have to speak to you. And uh, what a time. I was on the show a couple of weeks ago, but you were away. Well, that, you know, that. what can I tell you? What can I tell you? <laughs> it's, it's great to have you with us. It's great to have you with us. Now, Calgary had uh, its, its, its issues before the uh, pandemic began. Give us an idea of what your major problems were, say, two months ago, and how the pandemic has accelerated what you're facing. Sure. We were on our way climbing out of a pretty deep economic downturn. So just to give people a sense of the jarring reality of Calgary, we had gone from having the lowest unemployment rate in the country for many, many years to the highest in 18 months. We had gone from having essentially 0% vacancy in our downtown core to about 25% vacancy, one in four buildings are empty, in 18 months. That's been incredibly dislocating and incredibly jarring uh, for Calgary. And so we've been on a very, very gradual recovery from the economic downturn for several years now. Um, And in the last year, that recovery was seeming to stall out a little bit, and uh, suddenly then this hits. So Calgary has been hit now by a triple whammy, which is uh, the public health crisis brought on uh, by the virus. And, of course, Calgary is one of the nation's hot spots, about 70% of Alberta's cases. Uh, we've had a couple of large outbreaks that have really impacted our citizens here. Number two is, of course, the global recession, and as you're going to be talking to Dan Kelly soon, and particularly how it's hit small business and street front retail kinds of businesses, uh, which has been very tough. And, you know, statistics have shown that businesses that have to close during a natural disaster, some 30 or 40 percent of them never reopen. And so we have to work hard to bring that number down and keep businesses going through the whole thing. And then on top of that, at the exact same timing as the pandemic, we had the oil price war um, between Russia and Saudi Arabia. So I think it's fair to say that Calgary has been hit harder than this than any city in Canada, probably harder than pretty much any city in the Western world. One of the common denominators that has been raised by uh, the mayors I've spoken to so far, uh, where this program airs across Canada, has been the uh, challenge of property taxes and what that may do to the overall economy of the city, keeping in mind that municipalities are not uh, allowed to run deficits. How is the property tax issue affecting Calgary? So we have the lowest residential property taxes in the country, uh, among the lowest business property taxes in the country. We're, we're a very well-run government. We're very proud of that. Um, but the property tax stinks, right? It is a terrible way of raising funds for government because it's not in any way sensitive to the kind of year you've had. So if you're a business and you've had a really bad year, your property tax will probably stay the same or even go up based on the land value of your landlord's holdings. Uh, So it really is terrible. And so what we've done is I just didn't want people to have to worry about their property tax payments when they had so much else to worry about. 
And we've got a little bit of cash in the bank. We have a pretty strong balance sheet compared to most governments. And so what we were able to do is very simply say, if you're unable to pay your property tax, whether you're a homeowner or a business, just don't even worry about it. We won't assess any penalty. They're normally due at the end of June. We won't assess any penalty until the end of September. Um, that's not a, a great solution, but it is a solution that at least removes, you know, one huge source of tension from some residents and some businesses while we're working our way through this. You know, ultimately, uh, the city of Calgary is losing 10 to $15 million a week in revenue, um, pretty much on par with other cities, less than Toronto, because Toronto relies so much on transit revenue. But by the end of the year, we had a presentation from our administration to city council this week that said the numbers could be anywhere between, in worst case scenario, anywhere between 235 and $400 million deficit wow. by the end of the year. And, you know, compared to Toronto's $1.5 So this is a very serious problem. And as you say, cities can't normally run deficits. You know, in Alberta, there is some provision to run deficits in extraordinary situations, but that doesn't really do much good because it's got to get paid back. And if our only source to pay it back is property taxes, which are a lousy source of raising funds, you don't want to raise property taxes in the middle of what's going to be probably a years-long recovery. So we really do need some help from the federal and provincial governments here. They can borrow at much lower rates than we can. The federal government is essentially borrowing at zero right now. And they have much more flexible mechanisms to pay that money back over time than cities do. And ultimately, they've got to come to that conclusion. We're heading into the summer. And uh, the summertime is traditionally for most of our Cities, and I would imagine certainly for Calgary, with your wonderful geographic realities, uh, right up against the Rockies, and you and you have the stampede annually. So I would imagine that is a tremendously important part of the year as far as revenue generation is concerned. This year, tourism is not going to be anywhere near where it normally would be. How how's that going to affect your city? It's a very big problem. Uh, you know, when people think of Calgary's economy, they think of energy, which is certainly important, 25% or so of our GDP. But when you think about the other major industries here, travel and tourism is a very big one. Retail is a very big one, right? And both those are both pretty much closed down uh, at the moment. Well, in some ways, but travel and tourism is really closed down. And so when you think about the loss of the Stampede, the Calgary Folk Festival, the Calgary Comic Expo, Pride, and all of those events that bring people in, that's a cumulative economic impact on our GDP, I would estimate, off the top of my head, of at least a billion dollars. And so, you know, certainly I sit on the board of the Calgary Stampede, and canceling the Stampede was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, The right thing to do from a public health and a community perspective. But it's tough. It's tough economically. And it's tough for the psyche of the city, you know. We, uh, when we had the floods of 2013, mm-hmm. by the way, the city of Calgary has declared a state of emergency twice in its long history. And lucky me, I got to be mayor for both of them. Um, but <laughs> in 2013, the floods were just two weeks before the stampede, and we managed to, literally two weeks to the day, and we managed to get the stampede on. And that was a real boost to the collective energies of the city. And so this year, it was really tough. You know, the Stampede has put up a video on their website, which is a beautiful minute-and-a-half video. And it just says, you know, in every rider's life, sometimes you get bucked off. <laughs> and they said, after a great run, we find ourselves in the dirt, 
and we're a little bit mixed up and a little bit messed up and a little bit muddied, but we're right again. And the one thing we know for sure is right now our job is to look after the healthcare workers, the frontline workers, the grocery store clerks, the truckers, the cleaners, because right now all of those people are braver than any bull rider. Mr. Mayor, that's I have really the sentiment that most Calgarians have, I think. Yeah. And I remember that uh, flood in 2013 because I was broadcasting when it uh, was at its, uh, its highest peak, and I was actually sitting in my house in the eastern townships of Quebec talking to reporters who were going throughout the city and reporting back to what was developing. And just in my headset, never mind being there, just in my headset it sounded so desperately alarming. So I can only imagine what it was like on the ground. But we look at uh, if we look at today. And uh, if I can come back to the issue of what you're about office space, working from home, I'm going to try to put something together here. Working from home becomes the model now. If that becomes the model, how concerned are you about already existing office space in Calgary increasing and perhaps dramatically as companies will be trying to curb costs? And if you take that just that one piece of the the pie, when you project down the road for a year or two years, what's it look like to you? Does that make it's sense? Extra- Am I making sense? Yeah, you're totally making sense. It's extraordinarily concerning, and it needs to be extraordinarily concerning for every city that has sort of a bustling downtown, because we have created cities where the city center, where people work that have a concentration of employment, are really paying a huge portion of the property taxes in the city. So if we come to a world where companies say just is exactly as you say, we can cut costs and we found that we can really work well with people working from home and we need less space, that's going to be a very big problem for all cities uh, with a big commercial core. Now, there's, there's no certainty that that will happen. Uh, I know a lot of companies are actually finding that having everyone working from home is not the most productive thing for them. And in fact, I had one major company in Calgary recently communicate to me that You know, they had gone, as every company has over the years, from individual offices to cubicles to now large open spaces. And they're now realizing that their workplace with large open spaces is actually not safe for people. And they need to actually give people a little more room. So they may actually take more space for the same number of people. So it it could go in any direction. But certainly these are the kinds of things that I have at least a little bit of my brain working on as we're working through this crisis. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you about Calgary. It is a magnificent city. I had the great uh, pleasure of working in Calgary in my early 20s, and uh, I plan to come back, not not, not to locate, unless I'm, I'm asked. But, <laughs> but Mayor Nancy, thank I you so you much. Come back. We'd love to have you here. <laughs> thank you very much. You're very kind. Thank you for spending the time with us today, and all the very best going forward. Thank you, and all our best to all of our neighbors across Canada as we go through this together, and we cannot wait to welcome you to Calgary again. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. China manipulating the world PPE supply prior to the novel coronavirus pandemic being declared by the World Health Organization. In six weeks, reports Global News journalist Sam Cooper, China amassed 2.5 billion pieces of epidemic safety equipment, including 2 billion safety masks, As COVID-19 swept the globe, China, which is accused of hiding the scope of the coronavirus outbreak from the world, seized the global PPE supply, according to former CPC, National Minister of Defense, 
uh, Aaron O'Toole, speaking to Sam Cooper. At Scooper Cooper on Twitter, Sam Cooper joins us on the Roy Green Show. Sam, thank you for the time. A remarkable piece of investigative journalism by you. Again, wonderful job. How did this story uh, begin for you? What hit your radar? Well, the, a few things. First of all, uh, I have been following uh, money laundering and underground banking networks for years, and that all came to a screeching halt with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So quickly, my, my, my story and research focus had to move to this virus in Canada. And just with my knowledge networks and sources, I, I moved offshore to look at those N95 masks, which are going to be so important in the future for our, our economy to open, our nurses and doctors to work, and so important now in saving lives. And I, I saw that uh, there, China as you said in the opener, had seized and cornered most of the world's supply. They already produced most of the supply. But my research showed, again, they imported 2.5 billion pieces in about six weeks. And now the rest of the world uh, is competing for that supply. To boil down exactly what I found, there was a covert operation from mid-January up until March in which China was using its its networks run through consulates around the world and specifically through something called the United Front Work Department. And very quickly, that is a, a high-level propaganda, influence, and espionage network that seeks to uh, control Chinese immigrant populations worldwide. I somehow expect Daniel Craig to appear somewhere here any moment, Sam. Um, when you, I'm obviously I'm joking, but when you, when you look at the numbers, what you just said, six weeks, and then we put 2.5 billion, billion as in Bob, billion pieces of PPE, uh, all put together and, uh, and, and amassed by China and through this network. How did they do this? What, I mean, this more than the powers of persuasion, I would think. Yeah, it's a very complex operation, and what it shows is that uh, the Chinese Communist Party has decades of experience in activating networks. But I can put together uh, the pieces as quickly as possible for you. Let's look right to the top, Xi Jinping. This is a state-level operation. Mid-January, the alarm bells are going off. We now know China knows they're facing a pandemic. The rest of the world doesn't know yet. So... From the top, a call is put out. We need more N95 masks. These calls go to uh, consulates in Canada, where China has very strong uh, United Front networks. And around January 23rd is the first instance we find that a call goes out to uh, one of these United Front community group networks in Vancouver. Get us all the masks possible. Start to ship them to to China. And then we see in Vancouver, Montreal, Ottawa, very similar operations occur. And we found through my research, this is looking at official Chinese government reports, United Front websites, and Canadian community group reports, at least 100 tons is shipped back in that six-week period. And I'm going to circle right back to how I got into this story. I had a head start on understanding these United Front networks because for the past year, I've been looking at the connections between some of the casino money laundering organized crime suspects in Vancouver and their connections to these, I'll just say, Chinese communist influence networks. And I know it sounds a bit like a spy story, but the experts in CSIS, the FBI, 
CIA know that the United Front is very active around the world and has been for decades. And you, of course, were a masterful source of information on the money laundering issues in, in casinos in British Columbia, and you talked to us about on that uh, about that issue on this program, um, and, and reported extensively on, on uh, globalnews.ca. Sam, um, some of the numbers, just they just flow, you know, like 100 tons, uh, uh, 2.5 billion pieces of equipment, uh, and, 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 and just, it's just numbers, they just, they just flow. So uh, I'm looking at something else you wrote in the story, and that is in January, if I have this correctly, if I remember correctly, January, international agencies, intelligence agencies were wa- warning Western countries, including Canada, uh, this is what they're doing. They're, they're amassing and they're going to be hoarding this PPE. So you'd better act responsibly. And, uh, and the World Health Organization was telling, uh, countries to, uh, at that time to make sure that they had a personal protection, uh, protective equipment necessary. But Canada doesn't respond. We, in fact, send 16 tons of this equipment to China. What went wrong there? That's right. And, uh, so that information comes from, uh, two, very credible sources, one being the former uh, defense expert in our government, Aaron O'Toole. And he said that through his military sources and manufacturing sources in January, he was hearing from these sources that they recognized China was making a big move to buy PPE. Mr. O'Toole told me that his manufacturing sources, these are people producing masks, uh, went to the government and said, we are noticing this. Uh, would would Canada not like to make some move in terms of securing supply or protecting supply? And according to Mr. O'Toole, uh, this went up high levels in public works in, in Canada, and it didn't happen. Exactly the opposite. As you said, 16 tons is donated to China. So uh, Mr. O'Toole hasn't given me the, the evidence that he says he's ready to furnish uh, when when a further inquiry happens but he's very confident in his information and then i went to uh, another high level source this is mexico's former ambassador to china he had a different source it was in mexican supply chain logistics saying in late january the exact same thing china is buying all the n95 they can something strange is going on he checked it out in in the united states and saw the same thing and even tweeted about this january 27th so all the facts are lining up. Huge numbers are flowing to China. China themselves report that they're receiving a lot. And now the, the propaganda, they're reporting about how they did it. Why didn't Canada act? Why didn't United States act? Uh, I, have to, I have to think that it was, it's very hard for anyone to believe in January or February that, that this disaster would occur here. On the other hand, the intelligence agencies are warning about it. We know that now. You know, it really is stunning, and and the government now. Just look at the look at Canada. If we can set Canada aside from the international picture for a moment, just our country, the government's going to have some questions to answer. As will the public health agency of Canada. And I know you were asking them, what do they come back with? What 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 are they telling you? Anything? Yes. Uh, w- uh, after the story was published, uh, we we couldn't reach Prime Minister Trudeau with that direct question beforehand. But uh, very soon after, we we asked. Mr. O'Toole is saying high-level Canadian bureaucrats knew about this. So did you know that China was in a worldwide PPE operation? And if you did know, why didn't you protect PPE supply? Uh, His answer was uh, not direct. He said, we were getting certain information from our intelligence agencies in January. And further than that, uh, I don't have anything to add were his words. 
So we don't have a direct answer yet. But uh, I can I can tell you with confidence that uh, Mr. O'Toole says that he wants to push this and ask these questions. I'm sure we have a health committee right now that's asking to speak to WHO officials. They'll be wanting to test this evidence. I know in the United States and Australia especially, there's already a number of lawmakers that want to ask those similar questions in their countries. And I'll give you one fact here. March 29th, Australia realized the same thing that I'm reporting right now had happened in their country. And they uh, set up essentially a strategic uh, procurement act in which uh, foreign investors will not be able to to buy and uh, move certain goods without a stringent national security checks. Sam, you're a tremendous journalist. You really, really are uh, at the very top of the uh, of the uh, of, of the list. You're just you're outstanding. Thank you for everything you do and and the information you provide us with. Thanks so much. I'll keep working on it. Yes, sir. All the best to you, Sam Cooper from Global News. It's at Scooper Cooper at Scooper Cooper on uh, Twitter. Just an amazing story and just tremendous work by Sam Cooper. Just absolutely tremendous investigative journalism. Uh, Using technology, uh, apps to engage in contact tracing of Canadians who test positive for COVID-19. Mr. Trudeau says this must include respect, for personal privacy, David Fraser is a privacy lawyer, the Privacy Law Blog online, and a partner in McKinnis Cooper in uh, in Halifax. On Twitter, it's at Privacy Lawyer. David, thank you very much uh, for the time. And before we talk about the issue, I just want to say this. As Nova Scotia continues to reel from the mass murders committed just days ago, now the province mourns three more of its provincial family who were members of the CAF helicopter which crashed off the coast of Greece. Uh, 23-year-old Abigail uh, Cabra, uh, Captain Brendan Ian McDougall, originally from New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, and Sub-Lieutenant Matthew Pike, originally from Truro. The uh, additional crew members, Master Corporal Matthew Cousins of Guelph, Ontario, and Captain Maxime Miron-Morin, originally from Trois-Rivières in Quebec. But uh, just an awful time, just a shocking time, for Nova Scotia. So our thoughts are, of course, with everybody in the province. Thank you, Ryan. On the issue of contact... I'm sorry? It, it has been a difficult couple of weeks. Yes, yes. And I'm sure every day when, when you wake up and you talk to family and friends, uh, the issue has to be front and center. Absolutely. Uh, David, on the, on the issue of contact tracing options, um, Apps which send out signals to mobile phones which have recently been in close proximity to smartphones carried by people who have uh, tested positive for COVID-19. Now, Alberta is launching the ABT Trace Together app, the first contact tracing app in North America. And as I understand it, anyone who tests positive for COVID-19 will receive a call from uh, Alberta Health and be asked if they have the app and will consent to sharing the smartphone's encounter data And if the person agrees, then Alberta Health will have contact information for people who have had close contact with the infected person. Other provinces in New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Newfoundland, Labrador are considering similar steps. Is this a real privacy issue? Do you have major concerns about this? Uh, Well, it certainly is, is something that raises privacy issues that need to be very, very carefully examined. There are a number of different models by which uh, kind of technology has been suggested to facilitate or to enable 
contact tracing. And as you can imagine, they kind of cover the range of uh, intrusive and kind of collecting a fair amount of information and storing it centrally uh, to other ones that have been designed, I guess, from the ground up, taking privacy into account and minimizing the amount of information that ever kind of leaves your device uh, and anonymizing information as, as best as possible. And I think it's incumbent upon us Although kind of time is obviously of the essence, but we've been in this situation for, for some time now uh, to make sure that the proper questions are asked and the, the technologies that we're going to adopt, if we are going to adopt them at all, need to obviously minimize the risk to personal privacy with respect to these, these apps. So, for example, in the last little bit, Apple and Google, uh, two rivals, <laughs> have been working closely together, their engineers have, in order to develop uh, an API, so a framework that would exist on an iPhone or an Android phone uh, that would use the Bluetooth function on the device to kind of create random beacons that would be kind of broadcast and picked up to so to d just determine kind of have I been near this particular device, although you can't identify the device from the uh, from the little token that's generated. And if you test positive, then what happens is your uh, the tokens that you've sent are kind of then resent out to individuals and it's examined on their phone to find, oh, have I been, did my phone detect one of these tokens? And so it actually doesn't provide identifying information, at least the framework doesn't provide identifying information to the government or to public health. It just tells the person who has been in proximity to somebody who subsequently tested positive uh, that they should go and get themselves tested as a, as a result. But there are other features that could be built into apps because the apps themselves uh, are deployed by public health departments, for example, in, in Alberta. We even I have talked to in the past about whether or not uh, personal privacy even exists any longer in today's high-tech society or whether it exists as, as much as it should. Is this just an incremental, are we engaged really societally, regardless of the pandemic for a moment, if we can say that, are we engaged in an incremental loss of personal privacy that's inevitable? Well, certainly we, we are just in the course of our lives in 2020, leaving a huge amount of kind of digital exhaust in our wake. And so every time you use your bank card, every time you use a, a traffic transponder, every time you use a building pass and a parking pass, that there's a little bit of information that's left behind. And, of course, anytime you use a mobile phone, the, the phone company knows where your device is and also knows kind of general information about your, about your activity. So I think we can say we have less privacy simply because there's a whole lot more information that's just generated that's in the hands of third parties, be they telcos, uh, in some cases government, in other cases advertising companies and, and things like that. Okay. Um, but, but we still have privacy rights with respect to that information. Right. Okay. David, thank you so much for the time. I know we're going to talk again about this. Uh, it's not going away, and people will have more questions. Thank you for today. Always happy to chat. You take care. Uh, David Fraser, at Privacy Lawyer on Twitter. McKinnis Cooper is the law firm. He's a partner there in Halifax and one of North America's leading privacy and Internet lawyers. Dr. Sandy Buckman joins us, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Canada's doctors cite continued lack of PPE and coronavirus testing is a major concern. Dr. Buckman, good to talk to you. It's been a while. How are you? Yeah, it's been a while. You can please call me uh, Sandy, Roy. I feel, you know, as a repeat guest, I feel like uh, like an old friend. So, uh, well, good. Yeah, yeah I appreciate that. 
And I always ask, I always ask doctors how they are because nobody ever asks you. They just come in and tell you how we're doing. We never ask you how you're doing. <laughs> well, yeah. So thanks for checking in. Um, yeah, I'm doing yeah. okay. Um, certainly, uh, coming in as, as president of the CMA, this was this pandemic was certainly nothing that I expected, that anyone expected. You know, you think about what could go different during your year as president during your term, but uh, this was not on the radar. So. Um, you know, it, it's a challenge, and we're we're all getting through it. I have amazing support from wonderful uh, a wonderful team at the CMA, from family and friends, and uh, so uh, I'm doing okay. I hope you are as well. I am. Thank you very much for asking. Uh, I, I know that uh, that as an association, uh, the CMA, you're, you have continuing concerns, and rightly so, about PPE availability. How much how much of an issue? How much of a problem? How much of a crisis is it for Canada's doctors? Well, it certainly is uh, a major issue for Canada's doctors. In particular, it's with regard to the anxiety that they're experiencing as a result of of the inconsistent messages they're getting about PPE. Um, we did a survey most recently on April 20th and 21st, and we compared it to a previous survey of March 30th, 31st. The initial survey showed a lot of anxiety about inadequate supplies of PPE, doctors saying they only had one or two days supply, uh, physicians ordering PPE from their usual suppliers and hardly any of them getting word that it was, uh, that it was coming. Um, their hospitals were tele- giving them messages to reuse uh, their PPE, uh, maybe one mask a day. Um, they were uh, told they were, it was undergoing sterilization experiments. So there was a kind of message that led to a lot of anxiety. So we decided to do this uh, repeat survey three weeks later on the 20th and 21st. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it didn't show much improvement. We did see that 29% said, yeah, there was improvement. We had a sufficient supply. Another 29% said, no, it had, it was even worse. And about 42%, those in between said, uh, it's about the same. A third of doctors reported that they would run out of PPE within two days. Wow. The doctors in the community were the most worried, the ones at the front line, the the ones going to long-term care, doing home care uh, in their in their clinics and offices in the community. They had the most uh, the most anxiety about it. That's very disturbing, very disturbing to yeah. hear. We just talked with Sam Cooper from Global News, a great investigative journalist at the top of the hour. And uh, Sam uh, shared with us the details of his stories. He investigated, found China hoarding uh, incredible numbers of uh, of PPE, 2.5 billion they amassed over a period of six weeks. And uh, in a rather uh, sneaky uh, manner. But uh, let let me ask you about something else that that I know is is going on, and and you've spoken about this, and uh, that's the issue of elective surgeries that have been that have been put on the back burner or a no burner as the pandemic reaction was taking place. Now we have these this backlog of surgeries, and we're not talking just about cosmetic surgeries, you know, about printing up your nose. We're talking about serious uh, surgeries required, like hip replacement, uh, you know, uh, other joint replacement, knee replacement. How much of an issue is that? Well, it's a very significant issue, and I think even the word elective is a misnomer. Because, uh, yeah, elective might imply something like cosmetic. But these surgeries are surgeries that people need to deal with uh, what are, let's say, non-urgent medical problems right now, but could easily become very urgent or even emergent, like become an emergency. Uh, Take someone with gallstones, for example. 
it might they might be getting pain. Uh, we call it biliary colic in their gallbladder area, in their right upper uh, the right upper side of their abdomen, and that can lead to serious pain, nausea, all sorts of things. But it's not an emergency. But it can become an emergency. Those stones can block the gallbladder and the flow of, of bile. That can lead to uh, serious infection. We call cholecystitis or sepsis, kind of a blood poisoning. That becomes life-threatening. So it's it, you can easily go from something quote unquote elective to something that's life-threatening in a matter of hours. And oh, yeah. these people yeah. are putting it off. There's cancer surgeries that are put off. Mm-hmm. And even somebody who requires a joint replacement may be having severe pain. Um, and they, the longer they have to wait for it, the more difficult it is to function, to work, to have a, a quality of life. Sure. Well, I, I hope the message is fully understood and, and uh, about uh, the PPE for Canada's doctors. You need them because we need you. Thank you for everything that you do for us. And, Sandy, a uh, great year for you as uh, president of the CMA. Uh, you, you, clearly, you weren't, you weren't planning on what happened, but you've done a great job in, in, in communicating with the rest of us across the country. Thanks and all the best. Thanks very much for having me. Stay well. You too. Dr. Sandy Buckman, the outgoing president of the Canadian Medical Association. The latest information on the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, or from the Canadian Federation of uh, Independent Business. And that's what we're going to get at now, and it's on the state and the the future prospects for small businesses in Canada and the well-being of small business owners. This, you know, there's two numbers here that you hear, and they make an immediately different impression on you. When Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the CFIB, who's been with us every weekend through this pandemic, pandemic, talking about the uh, the challenges and the fears and the expectations of Canada's entrepreneurs in the small business sector, who are the number one employers in the country. When Dan has been talking to us about it, and we've talked to small business owners as well, we've we've got a picture of a sector that is under huge duress. And then last weekend when I was speaking with Dan, and we'll talk to him in a few seconds, he said that 3%, 3% of small business owners in Canada have indicated to the CFIB in their weekly surveys that um, if the emergency measures and the lockdown continues for a few more weeks to the end of May, they'll go out of business. So you hear 3%. And I would imagine a lot of people would say, well, you know, that leaves 97% who don't feel that way. How bad could it be? Here's how bad it is. That 3%, well, let me bring Mr. Kelly in. Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan, thanks for coming back. And that 3% represents how many businesses across Canada? About 30,000, Roy. It's uh, a huge number of entrepreneurs. Can you imagine the effect if uh, you know driving down your local neighborhood if 30,000 businesses across the country close that's that's more than a handful in every single neighborhood across the country and and something that should all take your issues and those are jobs uh, that that feed those communities that that allow communities to prosper because we'll come back to the point you've made so many times and that is the small business sector, number one employer in the country. And if those 30,000 businesses close, those communities where those businesses are located are going to hurt because of that. You're absolutely right. Look, uh, the reason that we've had so many Canadians out of work is that compared to other recessions is because this one hit 
the COVID recession has hit Main Street far faster than it's hit Bay Street. And Main Street is where the jobs are uh, in huge, huge numbers. All the restaurants, local shops, service businesses, nail salons, they employ tons of people because it's a very people-intensive business industry. And as a result, jobs um, were disappearing by, by, by the score. We're hoping, of course, that uh, as things start to open up, and there, are, there were a few glimmers this week from provinces that uh, maybe the worst is behind us, um, but, but as they start to open up, we've got to now repackage, all those, get all those people back to work as best we can. But if those businesses are gone, those jobs, they, they don't have something to come back to, and that's what should worry us a lot. Uh, on top of that, of course, there's the local community contributions that these small companies make. When you're out trying to raise money for your kids' sports team or your or the hospital fundraiser, you don't go to the big guys. You go to look mm-hmm. go to a, for a prize or a sponsorship to the local independent businesses. And if there's yeah. just a lot fewer of those around, yeah. uh, we're all going to suffer. You walk into the small business uh, itself. You walk into the building, into the enterprise itself, Dan, and you'll always see photographs of you know kids' baseball teams or hockey teams or soccer teams. Or basketball team. So that's that. This small enterprise has helped sponsor, and that to me has always been such clear evidence of the link between that business and the entrepreneur and the community. And so uh, you were very kind in your assessment on Twitter of the uh, of my my blog piece uh, <laughs> yesterday. But but the point I was trying to make, and uh, as usual with me, it takes me to the very end before I make it, but. Uh, the point I was making is that I think it's time to really seriously consider and trust the small business owners to be just as responsible about operating their business during this pandemic as the essential business owners are doing. There is nothing to suggest, at least as far as I can deduce, to suggest that the small business owner whose enterprise has been closed during the pandemic, there's nothing to suggest that business owner would not be every bit as responsible as the grocer or the uh, or the liquor store that is declared an essential service. So, by extension, let them open. Am I? Am I? How far off base am I? Roy, uh, well, look, small businesses across the country are grateful to have a champion like you that. Uh that, that has the common sense to see that uh, small firms can be part of the solution here in terms of ensuring social distancing and not part of the problem. Uh, you know, I was just out driving around uh, my neighborhood in North York, just north of Toronto, uh, and, and I saw the Superstore Garden Center wide open, filled with people. And every single private nursery that I passed, and I passed three of them, is required to shut down. Uh, now, that's not the case across the country. You have listeners in every province, uh, and, and in many provinces, they've had more sensible rules and regulations allowing uh, certain certain businesses, some retailers, to uh, to stay open even during the worst of the pandemic. British Columbia, for example, with an NDP government, I might add, had more common-sense rules about store openings than, than most other provinces, including those led by conservative premiers. And I and and so you know we do feel that a two thousand square foot business that that typically might have ten twenty customers in an entire day 
should be allowed to serve these customers with appropriate measures in place and shields between the check stands and sanitation procedures in the store like we do in the grocery stores, why are we not allowing them to, to have some of their customers back uh, instead of having everybody for their daily needs and their spring essentials lining up at Costco and Walmart? It, it just doesn't make sense to me. No. It's actually arrogantly mistrustful of people, of the very people who are the core or a significant part of the spine of the community. Yeah. I mean, why would they operate their businesses in a dangerous manner when they live there, when their future depends on it, when their their own survival depends on it, and they care about their communities? Well, they can be trusted just as much as any other business owner. Not only that, but you know, in 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 small businesses, typically half the employees are family members. So, well, yeah, wanting to put your kids like. Yeah. Think about the the local uh, convenience store that uh, that has the entire family working night and day. I mean, these they're not going to want to put their their kids and their often their grandparents in jeopardy. Uh, so, look, we need to make sure uh, nobody in the business community is calling for the for uh, for the governments to flip the switch and let everybody come back to work 100 percent of the time. But we think that these emergency services rules can be tweaked to allow a heartbeat of commerce in the smallest of businesses and actually do that probably with a help towards physical distancing rather than a harm to it. Yeah, uh, there's no question, uh, at least not in my mind. Now, if we look at the 3% of uh, business owners who said, if the uh, emergency measures, if the lockdown continues until the end of May, they're done, they're out, they're finished. They can't continue. 30,000 businesses. So there's another number here. Almost 70%... If I understand uh, the numbers from CFIB uh, correctly, almost 70% aren't sure that they'll be able to continue if it continues until the end of May. That's a really scary number. It sure is. Look, there's that that 3% figure is those that know that their business is done if these restrictions last till the end of May. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. They they know that they're not going to survive it. Uh, But there's another giant percentage uh, that are unsure and, and, and don't know whether they'll be able to survive if their business is, is forced to stay the way it is and, until the end of May. And, and, you know, I mean, yes, it's the beginning of May, but gosh, I don't think any of us expected that we would have, you know, almost two months of this uh, near shutdown. So some provinces are starting now. This week we've seen some plans from provinces, some better than others. Quebec is actually, despite the, uh, you know, the highest numbers in the country, Quebec is is looking to let retailers open uh, as of Monday in most of the province, outside of Montreal. So, you know, there's a grab bag of rules, and and I do think provinces need to make sure that they can adjust according to local circumstances. Uh, But but Ontario, in particular, has been super slow about doing it. Yeah. Let's take some calls here. Uh, In the time we have left from business owners, small business owners across Canada, and do you expect to be in business, stay in business, or reopen in six months' time? And what do you need to make it happen? Colin in Vancouver. Colin, thank you for the call, sir. Yeah, thanks, Ray. Uh, yeah, you uh, should be running for uh, common sense of Canada, uh, at least at least an undergraduate to the prime minister to let them know what's happening to the, the real people. Uh, at any cost, I run a construction company, and I see that the the, the leads are drying up. Uh, people have stopped doing projects. Uh, you know, it's it's not that Canada was uh, going for the best um, uh, economic uh, uh, run up to this point, but 
there's going to be a point where I think we're going to go kind of in a nationalist and we're going to be making more things within Canada. So I think if the governments are going to be looking at stuff, is that we should be looking at, uh, you know, maybe the, 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 the plants don't open up for... So, Colin, 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 you you Colin, you own a business, right? Correct. Okay, and and so, are you thinking you need to retool and, and redirect to, in order to to stay in business? Not, and not so much for myself, but I think on a national state. I mean, okay. why we're doing business with the CCP, uh, anyways? Yeah. We've got people locked up that are, uh, that, that, you know. Okay, Colin, I appreciate I appreciate your call, and I'm going to move along only because I want to hear from business owners who are facing difficulties. But Dan, that's a that's a valid point. Uh, people are going to have to restructure and redirect and refocus in many cases, no? They sure are. And, and look, I think your caller is absolutely right. The, uh, the, there is going to be a rethinking of uh, maybe some more manufacturing should be happening in Canada, particularly yeah. for some protective gear. I think that's one of the lessons we've taken away from this. Uh, yeah, boy, did we ever learn that listening to Sam Cooper earlier on on this program. Uh, Greg is in Calgary. Greg, thank you for the call. Please go ahead, sir. Well, you know what? I'm actually an optimist. And um, I think things will be fine. And, and like the last caller, I actually think people ha- are going to have to rethink about how to do business. And what business um, are you in, Greg? What do you What do you do? I have a, a shredding and a records management business. Okay. And and I'm certainly getting squeezed. But actually, you know what? I have a, a little bit of savings for a rainy day, and I'm going to be okay. However, this time last year, I wouldn't have been okay. And I would have been in real big trouble. But um, just one last thing sure. is that I went to my insurance broker and I asked about business interruption uh, insurance. And because it was named a pandemic, the the insurance, the business interruption insurance beca- became null and void, which I thought was a very interesting thing. And I think that's why it was delayed on being called back because there was so so many. Um, uh, repercussions because because it's going to be named that. Okay. So thank you. I'm optimistic, optimist, but I'm still going the best I can, and and we'll we'll be fine. I think. You've got the entrepreneurial burning uh, spirit burning in you. Thank you, Greg. What about that? Uh, the points made by Greg and Dan. Look, I think there are all sorts of businesses affected in different ways, and and people wouldn't go into running a business if they weren't optimistic in general. That's uh, you know you think about farmers who have had. Mm-hmm. A rough, rough year after rough year, uh, and then have a good one once in a while. You know that's that's part of being an entrepreneur, and that's why it worries me so much when I see the data that we have, because there is a huge cross section of business owners that are deeply concerned about whether they're going to be able to make it across the finish line, especially those that have a personal contact with the customer. Those are the ones that are going to be hardest hit. And that uh, that that finish line is three weeks three weeks away. It, it sure is, and and. Come, with a barrel here. Look, we are uh, really, really worried about making it. But I, I will say, there, your caller's right. There are some reasons for optimism. There are some reopenings starting to happen. And on top of that, uh, some of the support programs are kicking in. The, the wage subsidy actually right. done reasonably well, and, and businesses are applying for that. So uh, some of the supports, we're, we're grateful the governments have listened and made okay. tweaks along the way. Lots more to do. Uh, let me get Brian from Owen Sound, Ontario on. Brian, we have about 60 seconds. Go ahead, sir. They're yours. Okay. I had, I'm, um, I, I serve the farming community, so I'm an essential business. Uh, I had four guys working for me, had that for quite a while. They're all laid off. My business is down 90% from what it was. Wow. The farmers uh, are in bad trouble as well. 
And in our little town where we live, there's five businesses closed up. We'll never come back. We're in deep trouble, Roy. So you've lost five businesses in Owen Sound already? Well, this is a little town just outside of Owen Sound, about five okay. miles out. Okay. Yes. But, but, but yes. you've lost five businesses already. That's right. And they're not coming back. Thanks for the call, Brian. Very concerning. Dan, what about that? How many businesses have already said I can't go on? Oh, gosh. You know, I'm getting tweets after tweet after tweet from business owners that are, that are hanging up already. And look, there are businesses that close up in the best of times, but we're right. seeing such a large percentage of them these days. Okay. Deeply worried. CFIB.ca, right? You got it. Dan Kelly, thank you as always for your time. And uh, this is the most significantly important business sector in the country. With due respect to everybody else, they hire, they employ more Canadians than anyone else, and that's the small business sector. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.